0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to a special edition of Money Talks. It's 10 years since the darkest moment of the global financial crisis, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers.
1: Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy. Stocks all around the world are tanking
2: because of the crisis on Wall Street. The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic on Wall Street.
3: Today there is unprecedented turmoil in our capital markets. Lehman Brothers got caught in this financial tsunami. There's not a bank in the world that has not been affected by the global storm some more than others.
2: This is a serious global crisis, and therefore requires a serious global response. We will do what it takes to resolve this crisis, and the world's economy will emerge
4: stronger as a result.
0: What lessons have been learned since then? How prepared is the global financial system for a future crisis? Andrew Palmer, our business affairs editor, was the banking editor in 2008. Andrew, you still scarred?
3: Yes, absolutely. Totally traumatised.
0: And Phil Coggan, our Bartleby columnist, was then our Buttonwood columnist, explaining the almost daily jaw-dropping falls in the stock markets. What's the most dramatic day you can remember?
4: was that weekend as Lehman was collapsing and Merrill and Goldman were facing banking licence and AIG was also going down the mire, so it wasn't just Lehman, it was... Really, it seemed like the entirety of Western banking system was about to collapse.
0: And Ed Carr, our deputy editor, was the business affairs editor at the time, the job that Andrew does now. What's your overriding memory of those days?
1: It was having this sense that suddenly there were no grown-ups. Everything was sliding around. Nobody was in charge. Nobody even understood quite what was happening. And that sense of everything everything having come loose was perhaps the most thrilling few months in my whole career
0: and on the line from new york is tom easton our u.s finance editor who has written this week's briefing on what has changed in the finance industry since 2008 tom where were you as lehman brothers was going to the wall
2: i was in hong kong and what was really striking to me is that many people there speak chinese and you know mandarin and cantonese and the phrase credit default swap all of a sudden was popping up in people regardless of what language they spoke
0: and I was education correspondent on the Britain section. So what I was doing was writing articles about things like the future of the university while these people were running up and down corridors, telling each other the latest jaw-dropping fact. Banking editor, tell me a bit about the articles that stick in your mind from the time. Did you, you were covering Lehman blow by blow.
3: Actually, we had a Wall Street editor who was covering the sort of blow by blow implosion of, of Lehman from, from New York. So my focus was much more on, on Europe. But that system too started to teeter in the in the wake of Lehman. I mean, particularly sort of three, four weeks afterwards. That was with the point at which those banks need to be recapitalized. But I think, as Ed described, it was a you know who's going to go next was the was the way that one sort of went through those those weeks. Institutions that seemed completely impregnable suddenly looked like they might they might disappear. So part of it was sort of working out what the next story was 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 the real challenge.
0: Phil, when I talked to the Buttonwood columnist, uh, your successor now, I mean, obviously, he has to turn on a dime if things happen on the markets. But actually, he has quite a long forward planning list. Did you just give up completely trying to plan and just write about the latest crisis week by week?
4: Well, I wasn't just writing the column. So we had a lot of things to write at that time. I remember writing a three page briefing on the plumbing of the financial system, which is what really freezed up in the course of that. And the other thing about the collapse of the banks is that you kept discovering some new instrument that was very important, which you didn't realize had been important, asset-backed commercial paper, I remember, suddenly in the middle of the crisis. So there was some set of initials that you discovered was vital, and you had to get your mind around it. Who owned it? Why was it so risky? Uh, that, I think, was the intellectual challenge. And there were very few people who could explain it all to you because they were all frantically running around trying to make sure that their jobs were safe and their bank was safe.
1: Yes, there's that sense, isn't there, that, that before the crisis, uh, uh, all the instruments and the whole of finance was kind of neatly packaged away and, and kept tidy in its little boxes and everything was in place. The, the the crisis started this process. Where you'd open box after box, and you'd find things in there. You had no idea what they could do, and, and instruments that appeared quite safe, just just like the money markets, suddenly which were as safe as houses. Could, sorry, unfortunate phrase. They were not as safe as houses. They were thought to be absolutely safe. And then you suddenly people started losing money on these completely safe instruments and the whole of finance looked wobbly. So that, that for me was, was, was exactly as Phil says, this, this sense that all the things you could count on
3: were suddenly in question. And the sort of conventional ways of thinking about things as well you had to unpack. So Lehman was the symbolic height of this, but it had been going on for you know, well over a year at that point. So Northern Rock... Uh, went down almost a year earlier. And one thought in terms of bank runs as people queuing outside branches to get their money out. And there was a bit of that, but actually it was happening in wholesale funding markets. And that that was really hard to get your mind around. For lots of people, they hadn't thought of bank runs in those terms.
0: Did it take a while, Tom, before people realised how global this was going to go?
2: I think the concerns in the Asian markets were very, very quick. And I think... I mentioned they were looking at credit default swaps. That became a measure of how dangerous or how tottering a firm might be. And people were very conscious that if firms in America went, went down or firms in Europe went down, they were going to be implicated as well.
0: In the aftermath of Lehman, uh, we were really staring into the abyss, was what Christine Lagarde said at the time. And she called it a holy cow moment for the world economy. I'd like to ask each of you if you remember a holy cow moment.
1: Well, for, for me, um, it was um, the thought that AIG might be going down um, and, and the the real doubts about whether the system
4: could save it. For me, the one of the moments was when Royal Bank of Scotland faced failure in the next couple of hours in October 2008. And the worry was that the cash points, the automated tele machines wouldn't work, which would, you know, you could imagine the panic that that would cause. And the second one, I remember was Congress had to vote on bailing out the banks. And um, suddenly they decided against it, this perhaps was the start of the whole political um, uh, response to the crisis, and the market fell 777 points. Uh, and you could see as the Republicans went to vote against it, the market falling with every tick of the no vote in the, in the uh, Congress. And it, later they had to reverse it. But that was a uh, as Ed was saying, nobody adult is in charge and people don't realise how serious this is.
3: Uh, I'd go for two days after Lehman, um, the money market funds in America. There was a, f- a fund which said it would break the buck. So basically it wouldn't return mon- the, the same amount that investors had put in. And suddenly trillions and trillions of dollars um, was was potentially running uh, and the Fed had to step in. That, that to me was the moment at which the system was at sort of
2: maximum risk. You know, there's this notion that everything was about to implode and we were saved and it was stopped. But I am not sure it would have played out that way. I mean, there were other pools of capital that were available in the world if we didn't take the steps that we had taken. Um, You know, there were companies that came to the rescue of other companies. Berkshire Hathaway, for instance, bought large stakes in various firms. There were pools of cash in different places. You know, the market going down dramatically was a significant event, but it made prices cheaper And it could have created other forms of intervention. So I know things are terrible and we chose to take one course to resolve them. But I'm still not convinced in my mind if we hadn't taken that course and had things gone down, other things wouldn't happen that may have had better implications going forward. And I mean, obviously it's impossible to tell, but I don't think history is entirely conclusive that the world fell apart and we did the right thing in saving it.
0: What do any of you think about the idea that this could all have played out on a different path uh, without the measures that we took?
4: Well, I think the aftermath of the Lehman collapse proves that wrong. Uh, They did allow a bank to collapse, and suddenly everybody in the world doubted the security of lending to a bank and withdrew their money, and that's why the system froze up. And the trouble... Warren Buffett did buy some very highly rewarded, very safe bonds in things, but nobody wanted to step into the crisis. There had been some investments by sovereign wealth funds in Morgan Stanley and elsewhere earlier in the year, and they lost a hell of a lot of money on that. They weren't going to rush into a burning building with a teacup full of water in those circumstances. So uh, the difficulty is when you have loans secured against asset prices and asset prices start to fall, then the loans become worthless. If you try and sell the assets to deal with that, uh, then prices fall even further. And it's a very big downward spiral. And I think it could seriously have been the same as the 1930s if nothing had happened. I think the
1: other point to make here is just one of timing. This was happening extraordinarily fast. Uh, The debt had taken years to build up, uh, and it was unravelling in hours. Um so I, I don't doubt there was capital out there, but the coordination of problem of getting the right capital in sufficient quantities to the right place in time, uh, I think there was, I think that would have been extraordinarily hard.
3: I, I, I would doubt that there was enough capital out there. I think if you think about the Irish, having to guarantee all the debts of all their banks in order to stop the crisis. I, I just don't see who could credibly do that. There's a coordination problem, but also a, who could possibly step in with that amount of firepower? Several times it was, was GDP, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I want to
0: come back to Ed after that. Of course, I mean, it's going to shape Ireland for the rest of my lifetime, having made that promise. But it's not just shaping Ireland, it's shaping everywhere. And our 175th anniversary is just approaching. And we're thinking about uh, the next 175 years for liberalism or Perhaps less grandiosely, the next next twenty five years for liberalism. How do you feel that the ten years we've lived through since the financial crisis has shaped the way the situation that we're in now and the problems of liberalism going forward?
1: I I wrote a lot of the leaders um, during those months, and the thing I was grappling with most of all was how much is the aim to preserve the system, and how much is it to start all over again. And I think. If I look back now on what we wrote then, I think I was too keen on preservation and not keen enough on ripping the system up. Uh, and I, over the past decade, I've come to think that, that actually, by the time the financial crisis happened, finance in particular had become a powerful interest group that had protected itself and had um, engineered things to suit itself and, and that, um, you know, that those things needed to change.
0: What about you, Tom? What do you think the balance should have been between ripping up and preserving? And from where we are now, what should the balance be?
2: I agree entirely with what Ed is saying. I think there should have been a lot of ripping up. And then the question is, what sort of ripping up? I think one form of ripping up would be some sort of government control. But another form of ripping up... Would be allowing institutions to fail in all sorts of ways, and we would have had to break up a lot of the companies and banks that existed. Uh, that would have addressed the moral hazard, and that might have actually been a quite energizing and strengthening and ongoingly positive component of the financial market. I, I think that because we didn't do that, we have a lot of issues going forward today.
0: Andrew, 10 years later, we're still writing leaders about things like bankers' bonuses why have we not actually managed to resolve these questions that we st- we started on 10 years ago and people are still feeling that the legacy is unfinished
3: lots of things have changed in fact so there's a, i think there's a difference between the sort of what's happened behind the scenes the sort of the technical answers to some of these things so bonuses are still really high um but they can get clawed back now in a way that they couldn't couldn't before and presumably if we were ever in this situation again um public authorities would be much more careful about ensuring that the banks um, couldn't couldn't pay out. so the, I think there's a difference between what actually happened and the very legitimate anger that people feel ten years on from something that rescued the banks but then exacted a very high price on individuals through austerity, et cetera, et cetera. So to me the should we have ripped up the system is not quite the right the right question. it's should we have been radical in the way you think about the treatment of individuals as that crisis unfolded. <laughs>
0: Philip, you've just been talking to Adam Tooze, an author who's written a book called Crashed about the financial crisis. Let's hear a bit from that conversation.
3: Adam, welcome to Money
5: Talks. Thank you for having me on.
4: I thought we could uh, start perhaps by asking about your thoughts about the build up to the crisis, what you think went wrong to cause the you know, great breakdown of the financial system 10 years ago.
5: Well, it's tempting to focus on the sort of the obvious trigger for the crisis, which is real estate. And there are some very big bubbles in the housing markets on both sides of the Atlantic. Hotspots in the United States and then Spain, Ireland and so on. And those are the trigger. Uh, Those are what bring the House of Cards down. But I think we also have to look at the banking model itself, the true common denominator of the crisis, which swept all the way across the world from the Atlantic to South Korea to Russia.
4: So do you think this is a failure of regulators to spot the problem or of politicians to spot that regulators were
5: asleep on the job? I think there's probably a chicken and egg thing with the regulators and the politicians. Uh, You know, a forceful regulation needs political backing. And without aggressive regulation, it's difficult for inexpert politicians to really gain a a handle on the situation. But I think we should probably add in as a third group, the bankers themselves uh, and the people that they served. After all, what they're doing is essentially putting their survival on the line. I think it's important not to treat them as irresponsible children and expect politicians and regulators to sort out the messes they make. I mean, fundamentally, a large part of the transatlantic financial system was operating a a lethally dangerous business model, uh, which they then, you know, made dangerous for each other. This is not a problem that comes from the political side or the government deficits principally. It's driven by the in- internal dynamics, the internal contradictions of the of the private credit system. We can look at the response to the crisis really in two stages. So the first response
4: was uh, obviously interest rate cuts and uh, then initially a fiscal stimulus Uh, agreed on in much of the rest of the world. But then we get to the second stage of the crisis where you're much more critical in the book. Uh, Obviously, the start of austerity in 2010, Britain and elsewhere. And then, of course, the Eurozone crisis
5: in, well, that year and then 2011, 2012. Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, um, it's not really just a matter of personal judgment and preferences with regard to fiscal policy. Historically speaking, the squeeze applied through the fiscal balance from 2010 across the richer countries of the world is the most rapid tightening applied in response to a crisis like this on on record, certainly in recent history. Um, so there's reason to think there's something anomalous about it. And I think it's driven in part by simply the scale of the fiscal blowout between 2008, 2009, 10, which really took everyone by surprise. And the scale of the deficits is very big. And then the kind of common sense fiscal stabilization, consolidation, long-termism of the 1990s, which is a common denominator. And then I think we have to credit political entrepreneurship. There are specific programs in the case of the Tory party in Britain, or the question of the CDU uh, in Germany as well, which is pushing a fairly you know sustained program of fiscal consolidation all the way back to the period before 2008. So a variety of things overlap to produce an outcome which is, in historical terms, anomalous. In other words, a much more rapid tightening of fiscal policy than we've seen in previous decades. And the aftermath of
4: that is still with us, of course. Um, Do you blame that austerity
5: for the rise of populism that we've seen in the last three years? I'm not keen on the populist label because I think it mixes together a bunch of things which really should be kept apart. I don't think there's any doubt that the austerity squeeze in countries like Spain and Greece and to an extent also in Italy, produced there a vigorous left-wing response. There's also pretty good evidence from statistical work that shows that Brexit voting was particularly heavy in parts of Britain where the austerity squeeze was heaviest in local councils and so on. So two very different types of political response, um, but certainly evidence in both cases for the fiscal squeeze having an effect in radicalising politics, in polarising politics, in producing a you know, a vigorous, anti-systemic pushback, if you like.
4: Well, that was Adam Tooze, author of Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, perhaps the most uh, thorough and uh, deeply analytical uh, take on the crisis that any author has produced so far.
0: If we go back even earlier than Lehman Brothers, uh, the subprime crisis was where this really all started, wasn't it, Phil? And you wrote a lot about that. Have we actually worked through all of those issues and are we, is housing now on the right basis or not?
4: Well, it depends on the country, of course. Um, In the US, house prices in sort of uh, value terms are much more reasonable than they were before. You still have the system whereby government agencies support the housing market, which you, uh, you could argue is not very healthy. In many other countries, including Britain, house prices are very high, out of the reach of many people. And that, again, pointing to the political dissatisfaction it is a factor. I think more generally, you know, assets in total are very highly valued. If you had fallen asleep in 2006 and woken up now, you wouldn't have believed there'd been a crisis because stock markets are high, bond yields are low, property prices are pretty high. It's been in the real economy that the damage of this crisis has been seen in the fact that people's incomes haven't grown significantly. And that, of course, has led to many of the political consequences of the crisis. So yes, uh, where I have some middle ground with Tom is that we did stabilize the system Uh, because I think we had to, um, but we did a lot more for the markets than we did for Main Street.
0: Ed, I seem to remember you writing a special report on the euro and the eurozone, uh, what, a couple of years after Lehman Brothers? Um, That's still just another ongoing unanswered question. You know, Greece tottered about 17 times, you know, then it moves on to somewhere else and now we have Brexit. Is this going to be sort of endless crisis or endless uncertainty about Europe or do you see it stabilising again?
1: I don't think it's endless crisis, but I, I do think that some of the fundamental issues, the, the reliance of banks on government bonds and banking systems potentially needing to be bailed out by governments who then borrow, reducing the value of the bonds, reducing the strength of the banks, that doom loop still exists. Um, And I think what's been revealed um, in the crisis is that governments, European governments, are only prepared to go so far and only when a gun is held to their heads, which means that I think we can expect to see today's vulnerabilities remain unfixed until the next crisis tests them. Uh, And my worry, given that Greece is a small economy, uh, my worry, looking at how hard it was to cope with Greece is that next time it won't be a small economy, it'll be Italy or or something like that, which is a whole order of magnitude harder to cope with. And, And I would say at the moment, actually impossible to cope with. And so that vulnerability hangs over the EU system and feeble attempts to deal with it the continuing austerity, a failure to reform uh, is happening against a a backdrop of alienation of some countries and a feeling that the EU is not working for everybody.
0: Tom, you weren't on Wall Street 10 years ago, but you are now. What's the mood there? Do people think that it's all fine or are we waiting for the next crisis?
2: I think that that issue of whether things have really been resolved is a huge issue. I mean, we've gone from one system where we had all these products, that, as mentioned people didn't really understand they existed or where they came from to another world where we have, you know, a kind of grimmer set of banks, but they're supervised in ways that nobody really understands by models that people really don't understand, which was actually true during the financial crisis as well. And to make any sort of progress, as we have said before, you probably need a very large crisis again. Generally, you would be delighted by high prices and there are high prices in the markets and there are high prices back in property. In fact, we're pretty close to the property peaks that we were at before. And you have to really think about whether that's a virtue and whether that's a true recovery or that's slightly frightening. Um, as we mentioned, the housing agencies that support this stuff are still around, and the low standards for borrowing, 3% down payments on mortgages, for instance, or high loan to income ratios still exist. And we have these low interest rates that prop up values that are really probably not sustainable.
0: Phil, low interest rates. This was meant to be a temporary measure, but it just never seems like it's going to go. I mean, OK, America has started somewhat, but not Europe.
4: No, and even in America, rates are far lower than what we would have considered normal levels before the crisis. That's the only reason that we've kept the system afloat. People can still afford to meet these very high debt levels thanks to low interest rates. But what happens in the next crisis 2007 was kind of perhaps the height of globalism, as you might call it, and there was a collective crisis with central banks helping each other out, with uh, sort of Gordon Brown supposedly organising the rescue of the world by coordinated fiscal stimulus at one of those G20 conferences. But now, politics is dominated by nationalists, populists, who don't believe in cooperating with other countries. So the next crisis, we will have less scope to cut interest rates than we did before, and less chance for uh, countries to cooperate with each other, and that means that the response will be probably far worse than it was in two thousand
3: eight, two thousand
0: and nine. Andrew, the next crisis.
3: Uh, well, it will happen. That's the first thing to say. They are they are inevitable, and it's very hard to work out exactly where it where it comes and how. Uh, China is a is a possibility. We haven't talked much about them. They had an incredible buildup of debt over the past 10 years and people do worry about that. My money is always on property. Uh, whenever there's a systemic banking crisis, property is implicated. Um, regulators haven't really cracked down on it. We've already talked about the US government still propping the system up and therefore almost inevitably enabling poor decisions uh, in, terms of, in terms of lending. So if there's going to be another crisis, then property, I think, is where to look.
0: OK, property, the next crisis. Thank you all. Andrew Palmer, our business affairs editor, Philip Coggan, our Bartleby columnist, Ed Carr, our deputy editor, and on the line from New York, Tom Easton, our US finance editor. That's all for this special edition of Money Talks. We'd like to hear what you think about our podcasts. Please go to radio.economist.com slash survey. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.